the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Division is a normal part of society. And in many cases, it's actually a good thing. Different divisions of a company, for example, allow for a larger client base and greater productivity. Spinoffs of organizations and corporations grow our economy and the competition drives technology and advancements in that field. Division in politics provides a system of checks and balances. But one place that you don't want to see division, one place that division especially hurts, is family. And that's exactly what we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks. We are dealing with division in the church, and that is family. If we could just stop division within the local church, we could avoid a lot of pain, we could avoid a whole lot of sin, and we would grow individually and corporately in our reverence and worship for God. So how do we do that? How do we stop, put an end to church splits? How do we stop wrangling and fighting accusations within the church? How do we end division in the local church. Well, this morning we start the second part of a two-part series entitled Dealing with Division. And we find that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 23. And if you're with us for the first time, either live or on the live stream, you need to understand that here at Grace Church of the Bay Area, we practice what is called expository preaching. In other words, we literally study the Bible verse by verse and often word by word, and the principle behind that is very simple. And that is, if God has said it, we better get it right. And the best way to get it right is to make sure we understand every single word, not in the English language of 2020, but in the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic of thousands of years ago. Because it is important that we don't interpret the Bible according to our standards or what we feel or what we want, but according to what God has said. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23 is the passage we started last week. Follow along as I read that. The Apostle Paul writes, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all Things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Our outline has been six principles to remember. Six principles to remember to combat self-glory and division in the church. And you'll remember it is pride, it is selfishness, it is 
self-glory that causes division in the church, division in the family, division in any relationship. You think you're better than him or she thinks they're better than you. They don't do things the way you want. You don't do things the way they want. And so six principles to remember, not just to combat division in the church, but self-glory and division in the church. By way of review, last week we saw the first three. I'll recap those for you. The first point, the first principle to remember to deal with pride and division was the asinine success. He begins in verse 18, let no one or let no man deceive himself. The grammar we see in the ancient Greek is that he is saying that there are those who have already successfully deceived themselves. There are those in the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago who have already thought, consider themselves objectively in their minds better than other people. And this deception stems from the belief in their own wisdom. They find themselves smarter, wiser than other people. And you know how it is. When someone thinks they are the smartest, then they think they should call the shots. And everyone should do as they say. That is to say, they have become so self-confident that they consider themselves to be smarter, more competent than the other people, no, the other believers in their own family, the church. And whether this thinking was from the influence of the secular world or specific false teachers that had infiltrated the church, we saw that the ultimate responsibility lies on themselves because they have chosen the sin of pride. It is their own sin. And what that tells us is that they are only wise in their own eyes. And their wisdom that they have is worldly wisdom, which we have seen throughout 1 Corinthians is not wisdom at all. It is foolishness. It is opposed to the humility-based wisdom of God. And we were reminded that we too could be self-deceived. And here's the thing. Self-deception in the area of pride makes you sit here this morning and say, I am not proud. And we must gauge ourselves, examine ourselves to make sure we are not self-deceived. Because of this, Paul suggests our second point, which is the antithetical strategy. The second principle to remember to combat self-glory and division in the church is the antithetical strategy. He goes on in verse 18 to say, If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. And that seems like a confusing statement, but what he's comparing again is the wisdom of man or the world, which is foolishness to God, Versus the wisdom of God, which stems from the gospel, which is foolishness to the world. It's a contrast that we have seen throughout the epistle. And here, a practical application of the theme that, again, God's wisdom is foolishness to the world and the world's is foolishness to God. And this is why Paul can state that in order to be truly wise, you must become foolish, foolish in the world's eyes. And if you remember, this stems from so much, from the fact that this what was considered a cult at that time, these people were following someone who died as a criminal, who was to be shamed in the eyes of the Roman Empire because he was crucified. Everything. You don't achieve success in the Roman Empire through dying. You achieve success by killing, by conquering. 
by going on the throne, and yet here was Jesus Christ and his followers following a supposedly dead person. And so starting from there and all that we have seen, all that we do in the Christian life, even today you understand is antithetical to society, to the world, to how the world lives. The world says, love those who love you back. We say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Everything that we do as Christians goes against the norms of society, secular culture. So, to be specific, to be truly wise by God's standards, you must become foolish by the world's standards. Paul then goes on to support all of this with the greatest authority, God Himself. Namely, he quotes two Old Testament passages, and we saw this in our third principle, the authoritative support. In verses 19 and 20, we see these two verses. He starts by summarizing again, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written. And then he quotes, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows their reasonings or the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. The first quote is from Job 5.13, and it speaks of those who may be crafty and cunning in the things of the world. And in that specific context, they use their craftiness, the rich but unrighteous, they use their craftiness to build themselves up by oppressing and hurting the poor. But in the end, the great protector, God Himself, uses those men's own traps to ensnare them and to foil their plans. You see, it takes a smart man to, de- to devise a scheme, but it takes a wiser man to use that very scheme to trap that first man. And when that happens, it becomes very clear whose wisdom is superior and who, in fact, is the fool. The second quote is from Psalm 9411. And it reminds us of the omniscience of God, the all-knowing capability and character of God, the ability and characteristic of God whereby He sees and knows all things, even what is in our hearts. And in this all-knowing perception, God sees the thoughts of the wise, the worldly wise, for what they are, useless, futile, empty, yes, According to the world, they may have made our lives better. They may have invented the computer, the internet, the smartphone. But in the end, on a spiritual level, all their technical and worldly wisdom, all their wealth that even those in the church are tempted to be envious of, it is useless. And you understand that when we say foolish and useless in the eyes of God, It is not just, oh, that poor soul, he's not as smart as he thinks, but it results in eternal condemnation. It is a foolishness that is far beyond any use of the word fool that we can think of in our society. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, this morning I want to give you a fourth principle to remember to combat self-glory and division in the church and that is the adverse standard. The adverse standard. Because of all of this, he goes on in the beginning of verse 21 to say, So then, let no one boast in men. 
with the so then or the therefore, if you have the King James, an inference is drawn from what has just been said. In other words, he's saying, since we know what we know about the futility of man's wisdom, therefore, because of that, let no one boast in men. That makes sense. If you're saying this is a crowd of fools, and because you now know that, don't boast in them, don't follow them, don't glory in them. And that's what that word boast means in the Greek, to glory in something or someone. And this idea harkens back to chapter 1, which we saw, if you would turn there with me. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verses 26 through 29. Remember, he says this about the world and about those who God has called. Verses 26 through 29 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, and here it is, verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Then even further back in verses 10 through 12 in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he writes, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Did you catch that way back in the beginning when he even brings up this issue? Remember, he says, I heard it from Chloe's workers. He even says back then, let there be no division among you. But back to 321. To boast or to glory in men is to boast in them, to boast in their qualities, to boast in their teachings, to boast in their wisdom. And you see this a lot in in your secular field of study, right? Well, Aristotle said this. Uh, well, I am a, a, a scholar of whoever, right? And there are certain people whose names that we fall under because of our field of study. In secular Greek traditions, it could have the sense of negative boasting, as Paul uses it here. Negative, like self-glory, bragging, even uh, illusory or, or imaginative boasting, right? Boasting in something that you think is real but is not even true. But it could also have, in the ancient Greek tradition, a positive sense. The heroes of those famous ancient Greek writings and their epic poems, such as those of Homer, would be said to boast in their battle skills or their weapons, taking pride in them. And understand that though Paul uses it in a negative way here in speaking of boasting in men, for the Christian, it is not wrong to boast. In fact, we are told to boast, just not in men, which you understand includes yourself. We are to boast in God and what God has done, even if it is through men. We can thank men, we can appreciate men, but we boast in God. 
Psalm 20 and verse 7, some boast in chariots and some in horses. Understand, this is a man in war, right? This isn't just what you picture of a chariot and museum. These are hundreds of chariots, the, the thunder of the horses kicking up so much dust that you can't even see them. It would have been reverberating in your ears. You would not be able to hear your commander yelling his orders just next to you because of the hoofbeats. This is a majestic scene. And he says, naturally, these enemies, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we, we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, which Paul quoted back in 1 Corinthians 1.31 and will do again in 2 Corinthians 10.17. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not even a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this. In other words, if you're going to boast at all, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Galatians 6.14, may it never be, Paul writes, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Not only is it okay to boast in the Lord, the logical conclusion then is that if you are to boast in the Lord, then you are to only boast in the Lord. Logical conclusion based on his character and what you know he is doing and his sovereignty. When you do boast in men, including yourself, then you are falling into the self-deception spoken of in verse 18. Because to boast in yourself or someone else is to boast in something they have, which in reality God is saying they don't have. It is foolishness. And if indeed they do have anything... It came from God. So boast in God. This exhortation is the opposite, the adverse, the contrary to what the world says. Back then, 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire and today anywhere in the world. It is contrary what he says when he says, don't boast in men. Any success, any self-confidence must be based on boasting in yourself or another according to the world because that gets you what you want in life. But, as with the whole concept of wisdom, the standard for Christians is contrary to the world. And we know that the specific issue Paul is addressing is the Corinthians' particular boasting in the church leaders. I mean, you would even think, if anything, this would be good, right? To boast in Paul, to boast in Peter, to boast in Apollos. We don't really do this in the church, but some do. Some claim a saint, some pray to a saint, whatever it may be. And Paul is saying, you don't do that. Understand, by way of practical application for us, that this does not necessarily mean boasting in a particular individual, even though that was the context for the Corinthians. It can also refer to boasting in that which is of men or provided by men. You can boast in your job. That's not a person. You can boast in your company. You can boast in your car. 
You can boast in your sense of fashion. That's boasting yourself, I suppose. There are all these things. You can boast in July 4th and that you are an American. As Christians, we boast in the freedoms God has granted us in this country by His grace. God has granted us the freedom, and it is by that very freedom that we can protest, we can uproar, we can actually post something about our president that is not completely positive on Facebook. I have lived in countries, I have lived in countries where they would kill you for that. And then they would find all of your extended relatives and put them in a labor camp for the rest of their lives, and they have no idea why. I'm not talking a, a prison in, in America. That is cushy. I have friends in law enforcement that used to joke, three hots in a cot. They joke that our prison system is, is silly. We give them three hot meals and a soft bed. I lived in a country where people lived on a dirt bed that they had to make themselves, and they only had shelter because they were able to find rocks and dirt to build a roof by themselves. I led a Bible study of a man who, when he was in his 20s, when democracy came to that country, came to America, he was born and raised in a labor camp and at 21 years of age did not know how to turn on a faucet or flip a light switch because he had never seen one. You understand that God is gracious in this country. Nowhere in the Bible is freedom of religion guaranteed. In fact, most of the people you're going to read in the Bible were killed because of their religion. You understand, our Lord included. All that to say is that whatever we boast in, we must connect it to the Lord. You can boast in your job as given by the Lord. You can boast in your company as provided by the Lord. You can boast in your car as a gracious, undeserved provision by the Lord. We live in an interesting time. And we can complain. And we can say this is silly. We can quote statistics. By the way, I get it. I get that statistically the coronavirus is killing a very small fraction compared to people would say the normal flu and other things like that. I get that. But as Christians, can I, be, can I warn you? Even though that may tr be true, I may prove your point, let's not diminish the death of human lives to a statistic to prove a political point, please please. I'm no scientist, but I can almost guarantee because by the end of this, one of those statistics will be someone from our church. Okay? Even without that, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. But what I was getting at is we are in a pandemic. And I know you're bothered by the pandemic. You know why? I've said this before, because the Lord has given you shelter and electricity and an expensive computer or iPad or iPhone and Internet so that you can complain about the pandemic. Do you see what I'm saying here? We have it good, my friends. We have it good. I'm not diminishing the difficulties that we have. 
but we need to be thankful. And that's the whole thing. When you boast in the Lord, then your perspective changes. You stop being critical. You stop being discontent. You stop pointing out all the things you could have that are wrong. And although the Corinthians are naming specific men, Peter, Paul, Apollos, they're ultimately boasting in themselves. This is a way just covered in a thin spiritual veneer of bragging, of making themselves sound like they're better than other people. But whatever form it takes, whatever or whomever the object may be, we must not boast in anyone or anything besides the Lord. That word boast, as Paul uses it, when he says, don't boast in men, to kind of summarize what I've just said, he means don't boast in any individual outside of the characteristics, the attributes, the work of Christ in that person's life. Now, understand what I'm saying here. It's not that you can't compliment someone on a job well done in their secular work or say, I like your haircut because that's not a direct act of service. It is an overarching understanding of God's grace and God's sovereignty and God's goodness. So, we must not boast in anything or anyone besides the Lord. Why? Good question. Thanks for asking. That's answered in our next principle to remember the absolute supply. The end of verse 21 and into verse 22. The absolute supply. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. Now, if you're very confused by this verse, that's okay. Because first of all, how do you possess life and death? And even if that made sense, what does that mean? It sounds like Paul is saying that God has given us all things. Now, we know that as a spiritual principle, this is true. But what does it mean to have the world? How does it mean, what does it mean for the Corinthians to own Paul? Or that we possess death. Surely it means more than we will die. And it does. To understand this, let's first take a look at the all-encompassing statement, all things belong to you. This is the reason we shouldn't boast in anyone else. In Christ, there is no limit to what we possess. So why limit your boasting to one person? But again, that possession comes from God. So when Paul says all things are yours from God, it is an affirmation, and this is very important. This is an affirmation of our total dependence on God. And therein you see one of the problems. When we boast in just ourselves or other people, we are saying our confidence is in that thing. My ability, my family, my work, my bank account, whatever it is, right? Yes, to us belong all things, but only by God's grace. And so there is a dependence on Him. So, stop boasting in an object that God has given you and boast in Him. That puts things in perspective, right? Why boast in this thing when you can boast in the giver, the creator of that thing? 
Although he can't explain or list every single thing, Paul gives a list of items that relate to the Corinthians' particular situation as well as some items that are so broad that they can encompass everything, life, death. Let's start with uh, Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is another word for Peter. Paul starts with the issue at hand. And what he's saying is that God has given all teachers to the church. No one teacher carries all the truths of God. And we have been gifted, we have been gifted all of them. These are all leaders, whether dead or alive, that God has sent us. They are ours. They belong to the church. And so they shouldn't be saying, I belong to Paul. They should be saying, Paul belongs to me. Paul belongs to us. He is our teacher. God has given him to us. Furthermore, why create factions and partisan divisions based on a specific individual when we have all of them? Right? Why? I've actually seen this in Bible studies where there was a division over theology, but the way that they played it out was they bragged, they boasted in their discipler. This is at the college level. This is in a very dark time of a familiar Bible study many of you are familiar with. Godly, amazing study now. And a different theology had crept into there, and so there was a division. And so at the end of the year, when they had their big retreat, people were saying, anything you want to share about your year here? And they would say, well, I'm so thankful for my discipler because he taught me this and this. And someone on the other side will be like, well, my di- I'm really thankful for my discipler because he did this and this. An elder of that powerful church actually resigned and left the church over this, what happened at a college level. It was a big deal. And this is what happens. Why do this? They all belong to you. Nah, not sprawl. I'm a MacArthur guy. Why do that? Listen to all their sermons. Read all their books. They're all for us. They don't want the credit. They don't want the glory. They don't want a faction based on them. It's called Ligonier. It's not called Sprawl Conference International. It's called the Shepherds Conference. It's not called John MacArthur Shepherds, the Shepherds Conference. It's for everyone. They all belong to us. Why cause division over those things? And so having addressed the particular issue, Paul goes on to explain the bigger items that we possess, the world. The world belongs to you, church. What is this? This is literally the world. This is the created, ordered universe, so not just the earth. The created, ordered universe where God has placed us. By divine promise, that is, by promise of the Creator Himself, the world is ours and we have dominion over it. You understand this all the way from the beginning of Genesis. But also we know that in the millennial kingdom, we will possess the world, the heavens and the earth, in an even deeper way as God assigns us, as God allows us. As the redeemed and through the wisdom of God, we see the world as it actually is. And this is a huge part of possessing the world. We don't just see the world as Mother Nature or evolution or the, or, uh, the Big Bang or something to manipulate for, for our own good. Something that's going to live for, for millions of years and so we must protect it. Now we understand that the, the world has a shelf life and God is coming to judge and destroy. We see the world as it is, as a means, as a vessel for us to glorify Him. And as the redeemed and through the wisdom of God, we know that He is the Creator and we have a relationship with Him. We worship Him. 
in it, in the world, whatever it may be, in nature, in the mountains, in the trees, in the animal kingdom, even in electricity, the lights, this GoPro camera, this laptop over there, all of these things, in them we, because we have been redeemed, because we have the Holy Spirit, we see His power. We recognize His wisdom. And we enjoy His grace. We see these attributes in all created things. And when that understanding boils down to the particulars of our lives, it is in and through the world that we faithfully serve for His glory. This leads to the next two, which is, might be the most confusing. We possess life and death. This means more than we are alive and we will die. In this life... Let's start with life. In this life, we live fully. We live as mankind was created to live, that is to worship and glorify the Creator. We know, as Christians, that living a full life is not having a family, is not having a successful career and a home. That's man's wisdom. That's foolishness. Living a full life is living all things to the glory of God. That's God's wisdom. And if living to the glory of God means having a family and having a successful career as He sees fit, praise God. And if living to the glory of God means that you were never able to finish high school and all you can do is uh, work a part-time job that pays less than minimum wage, praise God. You are living a full life so long as you live it for God's glory. That's God's wisdom. But we also possess death. Because of Christ, even death has been conquered and is ours. It's not the end, but a new beginning in a release from sin, temptation, and evil that plagues us from the day we are born. We no longer fear death because God has taken care of the dread of it on the cross. We can say with Paul, as he quotes Hosea, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Or even further, as Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to die is actually gain. In Christ, even the most feared and misunderstood reality of life belongs to us. Then he goes on and he says, things present or things to come. Despite the challenges of our present time, again, because of Christ, we see the present within God's sovereign plan and as a crucial time to glorify God. And it's different. Yes, we will glorify and praise God forever in eternity, but understand now, Now is the time that we are earning reward. Now is the time that we can repent of sin. Now is the time that we can struggle, fight, strive for holiness. Understand that when I say the challenges of our present time, I am not talking about the coronavirus or protests in the streets. The greatest challenge in your life today is your personal sin. And so, in this life, we know that Christ has conquered it and we strive to repent of it. But we know that God has given us His Spirit 
that he works all things together for our good, Romans 8.28. And because of these truths, we can see the beauty and wonder of this present age, even in the midst of its sinfulness and its decay. So, the present that Paul talks about includes all the objects, all the situations, all the events, all the experiences that come our way. And knowing and living in a way that everything is in God's hands makes us that much more joyful and that much more spiritually rich. But it's not just the present that is ours, it is the things to come. Not the future of this life, that would be the present, but eternity. Even that is ours in Christ. Knowing that the future is ours, how much more should we live in a way that honors God today, knowing that it affects our future? And we saw that in the passage regarding reward and wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious metals, precious stone. Then Paul closes with all things belong to you. So the Corinthians, by claiming Paul or Cephas or Apollos, were actually claiming too little. Everything is yours, he says. And to none of it, none of it, are we in bondage. Look again at this list. The unbelieving world is in bondage to these things. They're in bondage to it. Life is all they have. It's the rat race. Death, fear, and unknown. Things present, stress. Things to come, again, fear and unknown are just, we just cease to be, they say. But for the believer, we have all these things in Christ and we are not enslaved to these things. And the phrase, in Christ, is crucial. It is key. That's what brings it all together and for us brings this series to a close in our sixth principle to remember to combat self-glory and division in the church, the amazing syndicate. The amazing syndicate. Verse 23. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. This is the theological basis for everything we've looked at today. All things are ours because we belong to Christ, and everything belongs to Him. He, in turn, belongs to God. As the church, we are His purchased possession. And since we, as a corporate entity, belong to Him, we also all belong to each other. There is a mutual accountability and submission called to in Scripture. We all belong to each other, and those leaders that the Corinthians are creating factions with are part of the church. They're not separate. They're not above. They're all part of it. We are all in this together, and as an entity, the church, the universal church, but as it plays out into the local church, we own all of these things. We possess all of these things, and again, the key is in Christ. And if it is one person that is the giver and the unifier of all these things, then there is no place for division. There is no place for pride and self-glory. So, 
We've seen six principles to remember to combat self-glory and division in the church. The asinine success, the antithetical strategy, the authoritative support, the adverse standard, the absolute supply, and the awesome syndicate. Understand that as you take this passage and these sermons home, and you try to apply them and you evaluate, do I have this problem? Uh, Do I have this problem with pride, either in the church or elsewhere? It doesn't matter if it's not played out in the church, it's in your heart, that's the problem. As you think through that and as you, you, you say, do I have pride in my life, in my heart, in some way? And just to save you some time, I'm going to let you know that the answer is yes, you do. And as you focus and as you try to deal with that and as you see that it can lead to division, even as we saw last week in your own heart, thinking, creating a divide in your mind in terms of the levels or, or whatever it may be in your mind of other people because that's what pride is, right? Considering not others more important than yourself but considering yourself more important than others. You have to remember that there is a commonality in Christ, He is the great equalizer. Whether you clean toilets for a living or you're a multi-billionaire because you make toilets for a living, it doesn't matter. Whether you're you're the guy who has to give the change at the store for minimum wage or you're the guy who invests other people's money and you're living as the 1%. Christ is the great equalizer, not in social status, not in economic status, not even in education. He's a great equalizer because we know he has given it all to us. And just as we can say, we have been blessed because I have a home, I have hand sanitizer and masks and heat and light and running water. So the Christian homeless man can say, I have been blessed because I got to, I found a half-eaten burrito today and that guy gave me some change and I am alive. And the millionaire in the house ends that statement with, because I have Christ and the homeless man who was grumbling and sick and cold says, because I have Christ. Yesterday I was on the phone with a younger couple in our church, and they were uh, driving on their way to play golf together. And it's something that the husband has done for a while, and the wife is now enjoying that with him. And that evening, it occurred to me, and I'm not saying this because it bothered me, because it never has. I never even thought about it. I told my wife, I said, it's so good that they're doing that thing. They have a thing that they do together outside of just normal life. And I realized my wife and I never had a thing. We never had a hobby that we could say, this is how we relax. Uh, We, you know, we go bowling together. We play golf together. We go skiing together. Because we dated long distance on different countries, in different continents. And then a month after we got married, we moved to a developing country in Eastern Europe where those things we probably would have done in America didn't exist. And then when we moved to America, we had kids, and so we just didn't have the free time to get away to 
develop a hobby like that. But it never occurred to me because it didn't matter. We don't need a thing. In our understanding of, of enjoying marriage in Christ and enjoying each other, we, just ha- we had each other. And so we learned to just enjoy taking walks. We learned to uh, enjoy just, uh, you know, in that country, g- going grocery shopping, which if you've ever visited or lived in Europe, you know it's quite the ordeal, developing country or first world country. Fresh produce, then the cheese guy, then the meat guy and all that. And especially where we live, just going to little mom and pop shops and seeing if maybe they, they had imported or bought at the big wholesale market something that we were familiar with from the States. And we enjoyed each other even though we didn't have a thing. And I think sometimes that's what causes division. Yeah, yes, we're the church, yes, but, you know, I like those guys because we have this thing. I like these gals because we have that thing. And that thing may be age. That, that thing may be a hobby. That thing may just be a conversation about sports or, or whatever it may be, politics. But understand that there's a bigger thing, and that thing is a person, and that person is Christ. It's okay that you're not best friends with everyone in any church you've ever been to. People complain, oh, there's cliques in the church, and as our church gets bigger, there's cliques. That's fine. You want cliques. Because you know what cliques mean to me? That means opening up with three or four people. That, that, that means greater accountability. That means talking. You're not going to share about your, your struggles with pornography or your argument with your wife with the whole church. But where cliques are bad is when you say, us four shut the door no more. That's not the church. But it's good to have an inner circle of friends. That's normal. That's actually what we're trying to create with our small groups. But ultimately, we have Christ. That's a great unifier. And so even the world says, you should have nothing to do with that person. Right? You, you, you have an advanced degree. You graduated from an Ivy League school, and I know you go to the same church with that person, but you know that guy never graduated from high school. He, he, cannot even, he cannot even read the book we're going through a men's group because what we consider simple grammar He's just getting confused and he's putting it down. And the world says, nah, I know people like this. I know people who grew up wealthy and are wealthy, and I don't think they know the name of a single blue-collar person in their lives except for the ones living in their homes because they work for them. This is the world. This is a problem. And they don't have the great unifier, Jesus Christ, the great equalizer, Jesus Christ. And so my point is, we have to see, because that's what causes divisions, right? I have this, you don't. Or, or even in our, our sense of humility or false humility or even just lack of self-confidence, we say, you have that, so I cannot be your friend. I can't talk to you. And that's just the reality of, of the world. I, I know... We have many in our church who have graduated from some of the top universities in the world. And man, do you have to pry it out of them because they know. They know that the world has instilled in us this belief that you don't tell people that because then people treat you differently. Or the people who didn't go to college feel like they can't talk to you. 
Or worse, they judge you and think you're some sort of snob and think whatever. But that's not the church. And what I'm trying to do is trying to get you to see perhaps some modern-day versions of what's causing division in the Corinthian church. When we are humble enough, even past, yeah, you know, I went to this school, but it's just because this happened and this, and, I'm, you know, it, it was back when they were trying to do affirmative action. It just happened that my great-grandfather was this, and we try to play it down. Even beyond that, where you say, yes, you know, I just really, I studied hard, and the Lord gave me the diligence and the ability to, to do that, and I ended up getting a, a, a bachelor's and a law degree from Harvard. But you know what? God is good, and God was gracious, and I know that that was just His sovereignty. You take it back. You take it all the way back. You think I would have what I have if God did not instill a desire in my parents who were non-Christians at the time to immigrate to America? I don't think so. It's all God. He's a great equalizer. He's a great unifier. We have all these things, but only because we have them in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for what you have done in our lives. And thank you that we can understand in a humble and uh, in a way that just drives us to our knees and makes us fall prostrate on the ground that we possess all things in Christ and because of Christ. I pray that that understanding would always be connected to your grace and that we would just absolutely just, just murder the pride in our hearts, and we need your help to do that. I pray that you would help us to see it, to recognize it, and to weed it out. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.